Today we are continuing our study through the epistles of John the Apostle, and we have come to the second of his letters. The Apostle John was likely an old man by the time he wrote these letters, and he's writing to an audience that he repeatedly calls his little children. And here in verse 1, he even refers to himself as the elder. As John was writing this letter, there was a seismic shift taking place as the kingdom of God was expanding beyond the borders of Israel. And the early church was facing persecution from the outside and division from the inside. And so John writes these letters, giving them different reminders and encouragements uh, to these churches in crisis. In many ways, this, the, the, in many ways, Second John, the second letter of John, is really just a shorter version of First John. John is addressing the same crisis. Deceivers have gone out into the world, and they are threatening the church with their antichrist teachings. It's the same crisis, and so we see many of the same themes as we saw in 1 John. The old yet new command to love one another. The warning against deceivers and antichrists who deny that Jesus has come in the flesh. And the exhortation to abide in Christ and in the truth of the gospel. In verses 4, 5, and 6 of 2 John, he reiterates the importance of walking in the truth and obeying the commands of God, specifically and chiefly this command to love one another. And now I ask you, dear lady, not as though I were writing you a new commandment, but the one we have had from the beginning, that we love one another. And this is love that we walk according to his commandments. To borrow a metaphor from theologian N.T. Wright, if we are the body of Christ, if we are a body made up of many different parts, then love is the blood that circulates within us. God loves us, and our love for one another should pass from member to member to member. It should circulate through the body. Without blood, we cannot be, we cannot have healthy bodies. And without love, we cannot be a healthy body. In verses 7, 8, and 9, John warns against the threat of false teachers, whom he refers to as deceivers and antichrists. These are not well-meaning church members who, who have their doctrine mistaken. These are intentionally deceptive teachers who desire to propagate teaching that runs counter to the gospel. John says, watch yourselves so that you may not lose what we have worked for, but may win a full reward. So that we may not lose what we have worked for. He's not talking about earning your salvation there. He's telling them to guard the house they have built together. Guard the house you've built together, lest it burn to the ground. Lest the deceivers and antichrists burn it to the ground. And then, in verses 10 and 11, John encourages his audience to keep their distance from these false teachers. In fact, he instructs them to be inhospitable to these false teachers. If anyone comes to you and does not bring this teaching, do not receive him into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. Now, to be clear, when John talks about receiving false teachers into the house, 
He is not, he's not talking about a literal house. He's not talking about your homes. This is a reference to the household of faith. John is referring to the church as a whole. He's saying, do not receive false teachers into the church. And this is reinforced by the way John addresses this letter. He refers to himself as the elder, and he refers to his audience as the elect lady and her children. He refers to himself as the elder and to his audience as the elect lady and her children. Why would John address this letter so cryptically? Some have suggested that he may have been attempting to avoid detection and persecution, and and that certainly may have been part of the reason. But I actually think there's more to it than that. See, the Greek word for lady in verse 1 is kyria. It's the feminine form of the word Lord. So this is not, this is not just any lady. This is the lady of the Lord. John is writing to the bride of Christ. And I think it's really interesting that John uh, um, appears to be writing to a single congregation. One congregation. He is speaking to a single congregation, uh, a congregation not unlike Sojourn Oak Forest. And he considers them to be the bride of Christ. I think most of us usually think about the bride of Christ as a, as a global entity. I, I know I do. But John invites us to regard this group of people, this group of people as the bride of Christ. We are the bride of Christ. And we, and we see this again in verse 13. John says, the children of your elect sister greet you. The elect lady and her elect sister. So John is speaking of of two different congregations, both the bride of Christ individually and the bride of Christ collectively, and sisters in relation to one another. In a couple weeks, we're going to begin our annual Life Together series, which we do alongside all of the other sojourn congregations in the city. Um, And we will be talking about the why behind how Sojourn Houston is organized. There is an elect lady here in Oak Forest, but we have elect sisters all over the city. And Sojourn Houston is our attempt to give expression to that familial reality. Sisters in relation to one another. And, and this familial and, and marital language is consistent with John's other writings. In the Gospel of John, Jesus is repeatedly identified as the bridegroom. So Jesus is the bridegroom, but at least in the Gospel of John, the identity of his bride is not revealed until actually the very end of the book of Revelation, which was also written by John. At the end of the book of Revelation, the bride of Christ is unveiled, and she is revealed to have been the church. She is revealed to be the church, shining in all of her beauty. Jesus is the Lord, and the church is the lady, and we are destined to dwell with our Lord and to rule and reign alongside our Lord for all eternity. That is how the Bible ends. How does the Bible begin? I think if we look to the beginning, we can see more of what John is doing here. In the Garden of Eden, there was a Lord and a lady and a deceiver. 
Adam, Eve, and the serpent. And the fall of mankind was initiated by a failure on the part of Adam to protect his lady from the deceiver. Now, the, the point is not that women, that, that the woman was utterly helpless without her man. The point is that the man had a responsibility and he shirked it. Eve was deceived, but it was Adam who failed. Two weeks ago, Andy introduced two different categories of sin in the Old Testament. The first category was for sins of ignorance, which are committed unknowingly. And the second category was for high-handed sins, which are committed deliberately. In short, Eve's sin was in ignorance. According to Genesis chapter 2, Eve had not been created when God prohibited Adam from eating of the tree. It fell to Adam to pass on the command of God to Eve. And he was right there with her when she was deceived. Which means that Adam's sin was high-handed. Adam's sin was deliberate. But here, in this letter, the Apostle John, the elder, is speaking on behalf of the Lord, the true and better Adam, in order to guard the lady, the church, from the deceiver, the antichrists. John is doing for his audience what Adam failed to do for Eve. There were serpents attempting to come into the garden of the church. There were serpents attempting to deceive the elect lady. And so John passes along the command of God and he warns them against listening to the words of deceivers and antichrists. Don't listen to them. Don't even give them a chance to speak. Kick them out of the garden. Verse 10 is what Adam ought to have said to Eve. Do not receive this serpent into your house or give him any greeting, for whoever greets him takes part in his wicked works. And listen, this is, this is entirely consistent with John's emphasis on loving one another with John's command to love one another. True love guards the beloved from harm, right? This means that true love is not mere tolerance. I'm talking about more than just mere tolerance. If, if I were tolerant toward a person who was actively bringing harm to my lady and, her, and our children, you would not call that loving. And so sometimes love requires a a bold and courageous intervention. At some point, love must be intolerant. And so this modern notion of tolerance is actually a form, it's just a new form of moralism. The modern notion of tolerance is intensely dismissive and condemning of any perspective it deems less than tolerant. The same people who say live and let live are often the ones fueling our cancel culture. We have a zero tolerance policy when it comes to intolerance. And so we probably need to acknowledge that love as tolerance is the air that we breathe right now as American people, as Western people. And we need to acknowledge it because what John says here runs directly counter to that. Here in 2 John, the apostle of love, 
the New Testament author who talks more about love than anybody else, commands us to kick false teachers out of the house. We should not tolerate people who come into this house and begin to light fires. You would not tolerate that in your house. We will not tolerate that in the church. We will love those people, but we will love them in such a way that it leads them along a path to repentance. Whether they are caught in sin or caught in false teaching, we will lovingly lead them along a path to repentance. But we're not just going to watch it happen. Because we love the elect lady. And because we love the Lord. Because we love the church and because we want to present her in all her glory to the bridegroom. That's what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11. He says, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. So in order for an organization to survive, and the church is an organization, in order for an organization to survive, there must be some means of correcting or removing members. Presidents can be impeached. Lawyers can be debarred. Pilots can be grounded. Athletes can be fined or banned. And the Bible teaches that the church can discipline, that church members can be disciplined or even excommunicated. Now listen, spiritual abuse is a major topic within the church world today. Books, articles, some very popular podcasts. Everybody is talking about what happens when a leader is narcissistic or drunk on his or her own power and influence. And and listen, that is a conversation well worth having. It really is. But for the sake of the church, her beauty and distinctiveness, her witness before the world as a holy community, we cannot afford to throw the baby out with the bathwater. The very real danger of spiritual abuse is not a reason to dismiss what John is talking about here. Think back to that metaphor of love as the blood that circulates through the body of Christ. Churches need love like bodies need blood. But unfortunately, sometimes our blood can become diseased. We call this leukemia or lymphoma or myeloma, cancer of the blood. And when that happens in the church, we have to take action to remove whatever is preventing love from circulating properly. And so you see that church discipline ought to be grounded in love for the purpose of greater love. It's the whole point. Finally, let's look at verse 12. Though I have much to write to you, I would rather not use paper and ink. Instead, I hope to come to you and talk face to face so that our joy may be complete. Like the rest of this letter, I think, I think 
verse 12, actually operates on multiple levels. John would rather not use paper and ink to communicate with this elect lady. He would rather complete everyone's joy with a face-to-face greeting. And the same is true, I think, for Jesus. Our Lord would rather not use paper and ink to communicate with his lady. The Bible is an indescribable gift to the church. It is a wonderful gift to the church. But what would be even better is to have the Lord here with us, completing our joy with a face-to-face greeting. And so just as John promised to come and complete their joy, so we wait for Jesus to come and complete our joy. But until then, we must continue walking in the truth, loving one another, obeying the commandments of God, and rejecting all that is contrary to the gospel. This is how the bridegroom protects and preserves the bride until we see him face to face. For now, we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now we know in part, then we shall know fully, even as we have been fully known. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for electing us to be the bride for your son. It's more than just a privilege, it's a responsibility. And I I pray that we would take seriously the warnings given to us by John. Church discipline is a heavy topic. Kicking out false teachers is a heavy topic. But God, it's for It's out of love for you, out of love for your lady, for your greater glory, and for more love to circulate within the body. Jesus, you are Lord. Thank you for loving us first, for giving yourself completely to win us. And we desire to be devoted and wholly faithful to you. Holy Spirit, we do ask that you would make us into a healthy body. You would preserve the health of our body. Inspire us to love one another and to purify ourselves as we look forward to seeing our bridegroom face to face. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.